Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Good afternoon, good evening, good dead of the night, whatever time of day I may find you at. This is Alan Averill, and this is episode four of the Agitators Anonymous podcast. In the Irish language, B.A. Gullov means be prepared, and that's definitely what I wasn't at the weekend, as this is now the second, third, third time I've tried to record this podcast. Um, Previously to this, I had been making just ridiculously unfocused mistakes. I heard a rumor that the microphone might have even been pointing in the wrong direction, but I cannot confirm that. Anyway, episode four. What are we going to talk about? Well, firstly, I should mention, if you want to follow me on Instagram, it's primordial underscore Nemthianga. Seems to be the most vibrant platform at the moment, if that's the right word. Can I use that word? Vibrant? Seems like the wrong word to be using, considering the circumstances that we're in, right? Because I looked at the calendar the other day, and it seems like, are we really seven, almost eight weeks into this? seven, eight weeks since I've reluctantly socialized. Um, Most definitely something I now consider that I took for granted. I think we all took for granted. So what am I going to talk about this week? I think what I'm going to do, if you'll hang in there with me, is later on discuss the economics of touring. A lot of people have asked me, um, what are the day-to-day economics of a touring band? And for some reason, even though all of us go and see, or at least did go and see gigs all the time, it's somehow there is a shroud of um, 
maybe not a shroud is not the right word, but there's most definitely a lack of understanding of what it takes to run a day-to-day tour. It's not it's not a it's not a particularly complicated mathematical concept, but for most people who go to a show don't actually realize the chain of events that have allowed a band to stand on the stage and play them. So I'm going to take a look at that later on. Um, I must confess that I had something of a manic episode, if that's the right word, in as much as I can have that. Um, I uploaded the last podcast, episode three, at like three or four in the morning on a Friday, and I woke up at half seven uh, with a crisis of conscience over it and just deleted it. And then the next day, uploaded it again. This is part of the problem of speaking in a room on your own. I do understand now why an awful lot of podcasts have, so to speak, a straight man or a straight woman or somebody to talk at, because you don't really have anyone to bounce ideas off. And you also sometimes don't have somebody to say, hey, you overstepped the mark there, or that doesn't make any sense, or you're repeating yourself, or that you're contradicting yourself. And um, I was perfectly aware of the fact that often I do that. That's part of that's part of the conceit of what we're doing, the rambling nature of just talking in front of a microphone. But what I didn't want the podcast to be was a litany of mad bastardry, of boozy Irishmen abroad, up to hijinks. Um, I didn't want it to just be a tale of one boozy instance to the next. Um, I didn't want to get caught up in the idea that I was serving a cliche, almost of some sort. So this is where my crisis of conscience came from. Um, That every story might be, this one time I went abroad to this place, drank a lot, and something that might make you laugh happened. Now, the reason I re-uploaded episode three was because a friend pointed out to me, don't be so precious with all of this. Don't be so precious with your chat, with your talk, with your yarns, with your tales. Own them and put them out there. I mean, what is a man or woman without their stories? I mean, it's only proof of a life not lived if you haven't got any stories to tell, right? So I was conscious of that, re-listened, and I thought, oh, it's, it's reasonably entertaining that if I was listening to this outside the prism of whatever I represent or primordial that I might find it engaging and vaguely humorous. And that was always my intention to inject everything with a little bit of self-deprecating black or gallows humor, as you may call it. So the same person also said to me, hey, you know, if you're going to be doing this podcast for a year or longer or who knows for the rest of your life, as long as this quarantine lasts, um, then you're going to have dozens upon dozens, if not 50, 60, 80 episodes. So she said to me, the episode would sigh with the sigh story was great, but don't shoot all your loads in the first 10, 20 episodes or else what are you going to talk about? I.e. the implication being, oh, then we're going to have to listen to you waffle about politics. A fair point, a very, very fair point. So this podcast, in theory, as I start off along the path, is going to be a little bit more, a little bit more calm, a little bit more serious, 
maybe. We'll see how it goes. But a little bit more reflective and a little bit more, like I said, I'm going to look at touring and the mechanics and the mathematics of touring. So there's not going to be too many tales of mad bastardry. Um, if you're going to start a hardcore band and you want to use that as the name of your band, then I would like a little piece of your copyright claim. Thank you very much. Um, I was also mindful of the fact that through all the decades of Primordial, we've built up um, a reputation. We've built up um, meaning for the people who love and the band and cherish it and take it um, to their hearts or whatever you want to say it. So I was also very careful of not appearing like a cartoon character, of of somehow destroying people's interpretation of what the band means to them by somehow appearing like some charlatan, some interloper who just happened upon a formula that allowed him to gallivant across the world, boozing it up. You know what I mean? But at the same token, you throw your hat in the ring with rock and roll and you're going to come out with some stories, theoretically. So, you know, there will be tales down the road of times I had guns put to my head and did other various stupid things. But for this particular podcast episode four, let's try and keep it on a slightly more even keel. So with that in mind, the Patreon is patreon.com slash Alan Avery with two capital A's. I just uploaded a, an audio interview uh, with a Finnish magazine I did a couple of years ago. Uh, earlier today, there's bonus podcast there. I'm going to do a 20 year look at Spirit the Earth of Flame recording of that. If you want to go over and have a look, uh, I'm still getting to grips with what it represents and what people within the Patreon framework want. But anyway, have a look. So, how is your city doing? If you're lucky enough to live in the countryside or in a small town, you need to be thankful at the moment because if you're able to get out amongst nature and take a walk, this would really be a moment to reflect on what that means or what that represents because I can say without a question of a doubt, Dublin City, city centre is now, it's like the gathering of the Junkalos, you know, it's 15, 20, 25, 30 strong junkie encampments just on the main streets. I mean, they're little short of setting up little speakers and playing a bit of UB40, getting yoked out our heads in the middle of the street by now. Um, the soft policing that's happening, which I understand is just a case of moving them around the corner, moving them around the corner. And yeah, like I said in the podcast before this, the instance of these people now inhabiting the front foyers of massive... Um, business corporations which are now closed down because of the quarantine is an irony not lost on me but at the same time uh, I don't know how your city is doing but that's what's happening right here at the moment I'm not going to bore everyone with every podcast opening up about my concerns about the virus but it seems impossible to really not talk about it um, to not talk about what is happening. For the last decade or so, everyone has been told that their opinion is worthy of sharing at all points. 
They've been told that every opinion is as valid as everyone else's. How many times have we seen uh, teenagers identifying as Filipino women or unicorns or whatever, debating uh, genetic physicists, genating, debating doctors, people who've studied in the field for 10 and 20 years? We, we've fallen into this incredibly worrying state of always of doubting experts, of doubting expertise. We object to the grounds, we object on the grounds that somehow education seems like a form of intellectual colonialism, that every opinion is equally as valid, but how could it be? How can our daily intake of opinion pieces on YouTube, for example, of YouTubers, be the equivalent of a virologist, of an epidemiologist? Ah, I said it right of people who've studied flus and pandemics, of historians who understand where the Spanish flu came from, all of a sudden we've been flooded with medical experts, with bedroom historians and part-time pandemiologists, if that's a word. So what I've had to do is almost cut my intake of conjecture. I mean, I know that some people will consider that these are the last bastions of maverick investigative journalism, and it is really the voice of the people, and that's fine and well. But we've also seen what the voice of the people is, and it's a YouTube comment section. Um, and these are the people who voted a game show host to lead the free world. You know what I mean? It's people who listen to Hollywood celebrities who tell them not to vaccinate their kids. Yet when you confront them with a word like polio, they don't really understand what you're talking about. So what I'm trying to say in my roundabout meandering way is that I think we have, this virus has really shown us that we have a, we almost have a knee-jerk reaction to the word expert and we've placed little or no meaning in it anymore and that we are now so in the habit of assuming that every expert is either in the back pocket of big pharma or big tech, some are, some aren't, or that they also have an agenda. And I mean, and it, but the assumption of that agenda is also sometimes a form of intersectionality, which itself is an intellectually redundant concept. The idea that you can't, so to speak, have an original thought as opposed to who you are, which you cannot affect, is a form of this very same thing that the far right and the far left will accuse people of, which is that if you assume that, let's assume that a expert, a so-called expert, has an agenda simply because of the country that he's born in, well, then you are betraying a very foolhardy way of looking at the world, you know? Anyway, ramble, ramble, ramble. I was going to try and not get too political or too socio, how do we say? Well, we can say political. I don't even know if this counts really as politics. It's just an observation of society and where we are in general. I mean, what seems clear to me is that this pandemic was in the mail. It's been in the mail for a while. And some people have been warning this for years. They've been warning of this for years. And it's, it's a great problem that, unfortunately, for 
academics or scientists, they very often don't have the dominating personality that's required to get modern society to listen anymore. If they could be part ringmaster and part expert, quiet expert, then I think maybe people would listen a bit more. Um, but they've been warning of this. There's been black clouds on the horizon looming for what seems to be years, and we seem to have largely, largely ignored them for all our talk of integration and forward thinking in the West. We were not prepared, at least some of us were, and some of us weren't. But we're now in the situation whereby even if we have, for example, here in Ireland stopped the surge, as they call it, is this because of the lockdown? So we're in the situation that if we, if we successfully deal with the surge, that people who claim that the lockdown was too draconian will be able to point to it as being, as their opinion being. What is strange, though, is how obedient people have been in following these rules. Beforehand, many people would have told us all how divided how racist, how at odds this modern society was with itself. But yet people have, for the most part, been incredibly respectful and thoughtful, calm and obedient to the terms of quarantine. Now, whether you, of course, believe in the concept or not is open to question. I mean, what is clear to me is that we are quarantining the healthy, which would seem to me to be a rather curious thing if you place it in the historical context. Um, that maybe in the past what we did was quarantine the sick. But maybe we're doing both. How we recover from this economically, how we get back to where we were is anyone's question. I think that, at least in the industry that I'm in, we may have to acknowledge that it is going to be a long, long time before we are able to return to gigs, to the live music industry, to anything like this. In my head, I sort of have dreams of it being like this. I'm not sure if they're nightmares or dreams, but dreams of it being like some sort of um, steampunk post-present, past future where somehow you'll have to um, prove that your internal monitoring system is turned off to be able to enjoy a whiskey in the old-fashioned way and talk freely. Maybe we're going to have to go to some bunker somewhere where the where the waves or the radio waves or whatever you want to call it are the signal is jammed, so we're able to see that. Where we're able to see that anti-woke comedian or whatever else, or maybe to see a jazz band the old-fashioned way or whatever. It seems like some sort of strange, as I said last time, Stasi, 1970s Stasi-like society where arts and culture and humor and creativity are going to have to find some other space to exist in. And if that place is going to be trying to hold gigs in my front room or gaming on Twitch for money, then I really think I want no part of it. Right now, the pressure is being put on musicians to basically be gamers like you need to be a gamer in order for us to sell your record you need to be online playing 
computer games against a 20 year old from Iowa or whatever. And what's clear to me in this process is how little the gaming industry gatekeeps in that it seems to be quite easy enough to go onto Twitch and game against me. Personally, I'm not a gamer, so I, I mean, where am I even going to start? What a middle-aged man catching up to a teenager in this regard. And also people have lives to live. You know, the assumption that everyone can just sit around and play games all day is, it doesn't really make any sense either, you know. But what's clear is that the music industry gatekeeps. It gatekeeps very often, it, with the exception of maybe Bandcamp, but it gatekeeps fans from gatekeeps fans from bands I mean it is only now that after many years Spotify has a donation link or at least it was open last week I know whether it's been applied or not yet I don't know They that link should have been there from the very start there's no doubt about it anyway so what I'm trying to say is is that we have a terrible habit of conflating opinion with information and we have to understand that the following sentence, moderate man says reasonable thing, moderate woman says rational thing, is not what the algorithm demands. It's not what gets clicks. It's not what generates content. It's not juicy enough. It's not entertaining, interesting, fantastical, dastardly. It's not what brings attention and so therefore, anybody who sits in the middle ground of either diametrically opposed yelling voice, whoever on either side and every side of the debate has the loud hailer, that's the people in the middle who very often are indeed these experts with their, ex with their analysis who are getting drowned out because even the YouTube YouTubers that I get many links to and uh, with people telling me watch this you must watch this and understand 5g like some sort of don quixote railing against windmills or whatever it is it's or you must watch this and this you will understand then the motivations behind a artificially um, created virus it's designed to kill off pensioners it's designed f with gender mind it's all every agenda you can possibly imagine an uncaring virus or pandemic has been pinned to by people who are not experts and their their channels are also created with the same algorithm in mind we mustn't forget that you know however what i kind of see or been beginning to see pretty well i'm not going to say clearly because I think we are in a holding pattern of like it is we're like flying over an airport in the dark flight, whatever it is, 101 from Hawaii coming out of the sun, a little bit of sex in there for you. Um, in a in a situation like that, you would trust primetime Biff to land the plane. Like if anybody's going to step up out of there, do we have a pilot here? And all right, I'll fly the plane. Biff is going to get up and. 1980s Biff, 1980 Biff would would have landed that plane. I'd have no doubt. If I was on that plane panicking and he stood up behind me and he, you know, pulled his bandana tight and said, "Up, oh, I'm going to do it." But why Hawaii? Why? Anyway, we're like 
a plane circling an airport that can't turn the runway lights on, so to speak, you know? And I think we're at some sort of crossroads. One of those potential crossroads is, let's say we're going one of two ways. We either, we accept that in for the past 50, 60 years, whatever, long, how, longer than that, we have had over-the-skin surveillance, external surveillance. We've been surveyed by cameras most of our lives. Um, even those of us who maybe you're, a teen, you're 18, 19 or 20 listening to this, you've had a form of surveillance through allowing social media access to your personal data. What we're talking about now is the potential for under the skin surveillance, nanotechnology, which could be implemented through, through vaccination. I mean, I don't think this is too drastic a read of the situation to say, and it's not getting all black mirror or anything, but it's not too drastic a, a, a reading to say that we, technologically we are already there, that people who are missing limbs can move the artificial limb with only their brain impulses. How hard is it? would it be to, for our internal biometric health passport, I mean, it's already an app in your phone, and your phone you are linked to all day in a purely cyborg way, right? So that nanotechnology could quite easily read your apprehension when you're crossing into a, from one border to the next when you're at border control. Maybe every tiny misdemeanor can be read. Then we might be witnessing the end of lying. We might be witnessing the end of being able to hide any single thing from anyone if we're potentially looking at the reading of your heart rate to begin with before we even contemplate the concept of reading your thoughts. I did go back before making this particular podcast and rewatch Elon Musk and Joe Rogan and it's unnerving. It's like he's been sent from the future to try and unveil 20% of his knowledge to us or even to just give the glimpse behind the curtain and it's linked that with what's happening and I don't think it's beyond I'm not stepping into the grounds of conspiracy by contemplating that if we are going to try and live our lives as we did before and that includes travel that includes gathering and I'm, when I talk about gigs and festivals also bear in mind I could be talking about a political march against the establishment I mean don't tell me despots and tyrants and dictators aren't going to be lining up to use this new technology against its own people. I mean, imagine our beloved leader making a speech on the television and your biometric nano internal diagnostic sends a, a little signal to the central computer informing them that of your emotional dissent. I mean, is that too far from where we might be, like an internal Siri that questions and reads our every intention? I don't know. If that's the world we're going to live in, then I am not starting a cooking channel on Twitch. I'm not playing games with uh, a kid from Iowa, and I'm not going to do that either. Well, in as much as I might know whether I have or I haven't. Who knows? The other potentiality is that 
because of this, this dry run perhaps for something far more dangerous, far more, far darker down the road, perhaps what this may do is bring nation states together. I mean, there is no question that what's happening will strengthen the nation state and maybe that nation state can take back some form of sovereignty from an unelected elite who I think would be far more interested in the technology the technology I just described analyzation of emotional or intellectual dissent so to speak I think that what we might see is the strength and it could we see the strengthening of cooperation between nation states as they realize that this is, could be a dry run for something far more dangerous and that um, that move to take back power from an un- unelected global elites or whatever, you know, not to sound all conspiracy theorists, but you know what I mean in those terms. Um, and this might allow us to try and shelve some of the partisanship, some of the clown car politics that have been happening over the last five or ten years and realize that maybe we should have far more global concerns on these on these terms as in uh, environmental concerns um, could this be a grand leveler of to some description or could the truth just be a gray area between the two i don't know but my natural instincts are always to try and deconstruct the black and white side of every argument to end up in the gray mass in the middle because that's kind of my nature to wonder about the backstory like to not go for the sexy answer. You know, I also met a guy at a party once who told me that Rush influenced the who. So, you know. Ramble on. Rambling, 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 rambling. My point is, we're in a holding pattern and we need we need some metaphorical Biff Bifford to come striding down in his shiny pants and his boxing boots and his golf gloves and just inform us about what's going on you know what I mean I think it's also human nature to want to understand to find an overarching narrative to everything to be in possession of secrets to be informed on a level others aren't to have that demo that nobody else has it's part of our hunter-gatherer genetic inheritance I think that we looked back and tried to understand what lightning was to understand what a blackout was to understand what a massive flood was and we called them by gods by names because we tried to understand we tried to find an overarching zoomorphic whatever you want to call it um, to find an answer and so therefore at the moment it is in our human nature to try and find an overarching narrative to what's happening in relation to this virus. But, you know, I very much doubt that every politician is in on some Machiavellian secret that tens of thousands of deep state actors are all working together to push in the one direction and not one of them can let it slip to us. Or maybe they have and maybe that's what all of these YouTubers are claiming to understand and have intimate knowledge of but something tells me that that's not true that many of our politicians at least in Ireland seem to be muddling through as best they can some better than others but to suggest that every politician is a 
a master manipulator would be doing a discredit to the two words master manipulator. I say that fast enough. Anyway, point is, maybe this is our wake-up call or maybe we're about to get the surveillance state that we always dreamt of in our nightmares. Who knows? A year ago, I was in South America. A year ago, I was in South America, about to go to Easter Island, if you can believe that, which is something I will discuss in another podcast, I think. Um, but traveling certainly is something that I think I can be accused of taking, for, maybe not for granted, because I, it was something I always looked forward to and it was an essential part of, if a month went by and I hadn't traveled a couple of places, then I always felt hemmed in to, uh, to my own city, which I feel very profoundly now. I mean, if this, what we're living is a life without adventure, without the unusual, the, without that chance meeting, without setting foot in another city, you know, in another country. Um, and... Most certainly, if this is the future of living, and then it's going to be a very bleak and depressing future to be inheriting. Um, it was only, like I said, a year ago, I was, we were in Brazil, and I thought to myself, where should I go from Santiago to the north of Chile? Where should I go? And off the cuff, I just thought to myself, I'd always been fascinated with Easter Island since I was a child. Let's see how easy it would be to get there. And within 20 minutes, I'd booked a ticket on some rather suspect looking site. But sure enough, 45 seconds later, my e-ticket arrived as a text message and I went. And, you know, between going from Brazil to Chile, there was a moment where we took a very early flight and I was standing in Buenos Aires Airport in Argentina on a um, on a gantry lit up with morning sunshine and I could see the edge of Buenos Aires in the not too remote distance and I thought, damn, you know, this this is Buenos Aires down there. Buenos Aires, Argentina, there's so much history, faces to see, streets to walk, rich and varied tapestry of life and here I was just standing on the gantry with my passport in my hand on my way to another country and I thought, that's a shame. What a terrible shame. And over the last couple of years, what I've been trying to do with the band when I've been afforded the luxury, and let's be honest, let's call it that, of going to a country that I haven't seen before to try and take a few days either side. Because otherwise you can you can go to, I mean, it was three or four times before we played in Budapest where I was able to see anything at all um, back in the day. Because, and even now, you meet at Dublin Airport on a Thursday or Friday at four in the morning. You take the 6 a.m., the red-eye flight. You arrive somewhere, you get in a van. You arrive in the hotel, you try and sleep two hours, you play the show. And you could be picked up in the morning at 6 a.m. and back in Dublin less than 24 hours later by playing one show. And that, for, you know, if you have responsibilities, which different to mine, then, you know, that's what you have to do. No problem. But sometimes you need to try and take a few days either side to see a country like when we're in Brazil that moment where you might wake up early and just go and take a coffee and watch the locals commuting on their way to work just looking at people's faces just taking your day to walk around the city I'm not a man who goes 
in, who goes for the idea of I have to see every museum and I have to see every ancient artifact. It's not my style really at all. A little bit, but I rather at six or seven p.m. go to the small little strange bar the locals go to, have a beer and sit in the sunshine and watch the locals come and go into the favela or into the different areas or you know go to a local dive bar have a bar a beer with randomers you know maybe later i will maybe have done the museum thing as well but these are the things now that i feel somehow slightly to have taken for granted that this would go on forever my wish has been long to visit the middle east to visit iran to go and look at all these ancient sites and stuff like that. Will that be possible in a post-viral world? I don't know about that. It kind of feels a bit like living as an octogenarian whose sole purpose every day is to go to the shops and worry about what it is you have to eat. But you're confined to the same two-kilometer radius. Ah, listen to me, carp and complain. Carp? People use, still use that word. Listen to me whinge and complain. Well, my grandparents navigated going to war as teenagers. You may say, how dare I? You may be right. In fact, you are right. But you know, isolation is isolation, and it's all relative. It's all relative. And like I said, this is a life without adventure. Consider that in medieval times, most people, most people rarely ventured beyond the 10 or 20 kilometer radius of where they lived. Life was dangerous and cheap. But they never saw how big the world was. Now, all we have time to do is see how big the world is. But yet we are discouraged from taking any part in it. We're being asked to isolate, to help the body politic. And it's a very, very strange experience. Some other time I will tell the tale of visiting Easter Island. But I will say that on my last night there, I was at the seafront in some small kind of, they don't really have bars like we do, but they do have kind of restaurant kind of open late bars where you can sit and have a beer. And I was just sitting at the in this small little bar, sort of minding my own business, having a beer, looking out over the most vast stretch of ocean you've ever seen in your entire life. I mean, dwarfing, dwarfing you. You know you're miles from anywhere. And two bored teenage girls behind the bar who obviously dreamt of the mainland or dreamt of Europe or wherever I came from played Joy Division and the Smiths. And my lasting memory of being on Easter Island is what difference does it make by the Smiths? How odd that is. Anyway. So, where are we? I've been rambling, rambling, rambling. Let's consider a few things. I've been asked to discuss what is the somebody said to me, what is the worst gig you ever played? Now, I'll take that opportunity to try and explain how it feels to be part of something when you know the ship is sinking. Um, for example, the last time we played Brutal Assault, um, the local house guy went to have a smoke, flicked a switch on the desk at the front which he didn't come back from said smoke, maybe in time, and didn't flick said switch. So we played our first 10 minutes of the show without the proper bass end. And that moment when you start, and it's a huge crowd, and you know from the moment the first notes are started, oh, there's something wrong, something really, really deeply wrong. And it takes everything in your power 
all the years of experience of playing to literally not lose your shit completely. You can't stop. You have to keep playing. You have to use muscle memory when you can't hear the vocals through the monitors. Um, it wasn't really anybody's fault, so to speak. Uh, Emperor were before us and Hellhammer were after us and Emperor used a lot of inputs that we don't use. And I think that, uh, as I said, said dude who'd gone off for a smoke, X switch was not flicked. So how do you cope with that when you know as soon as you start, oh, right, this is going to be an uphill struggle all the way. In the past, it would have been my my way of coping would have been to grab the nearest bottle of whatever and just like literally down half a bottle of vodka in one or two swigs and get what you would call Dutch courage and just plow through it, you know. But you can't really do that. And you can't really show like the people don't realize that I see everyone's face when I stand at the front. I'm not playing an instrument, so I'm not concentrating on that. But I can people don't think you can see them, but you can from the stage. Now, obviously, when you're on the stage, you don't have an awareness of how you look with lights because it looks very different. But I can see people's faces and you know when it doesn't sound right or when something is wrong because people are how that confused, bemused look like, oh, they're not really supposed to sound like this, I think. Now, most people will be okay with a six or seven out of ten sound. And it's not until you hear a brilliant, a band who really have their shit together on stage. It's not until you stand in front of an opeth and go, oh, okay, this, these guys, they listen. They're other level. What can I tell you, you know? Primordial is not a professional band, so we don't really rehearse that much. So, you know, you get, you, on those terms, you get what you, I'm not going to say you get what you pay for. That's not really what I meant. But you know experience is relative on those terms you know but when you are part of what you can tell is if you don't use all of your mental strength and acumen to try and pull this together that you are going to go down in flames is a very very strange feeling it's a especially in front of such a big crowd you know um but yeah it's you kind of have to not let the fingers of despair work their way into your consciousness and just you could just lose it all together you know um, I don't know if that's really answered somebody somebody asked me about to talk about that but it just popped into my head as you can maybe tell this podcast is a bit more of a stream of consciousness like I said you know so what I did say is that I would discuss the mathematics economics and um, structure of festivals and touring. So I'm not going to name names of any bands or anything like that, but there definitely seems to be a shroud of um, mystery, a shroud of misinformation that clouds some of these things. And I'm going to try and do it in a way that I'm not going to upset people or piss people off, you know. But there are things that I would say 80 to 90% of people, fans, don't. Um, they don't know. So let's take the mathematics of a situation. Let's say X band. X band. Okay, let's start at the start. Booking agency. Booking agents offer X band to X festival at X price. X festival comes back with a negotiated price. There's barter, there's exchange, there's 
whatever you want to call it, and a price is agreed on. So let's consider a few things. Um, by now, you need nine to 12 months lead in. So most festivals, summer of 21, summer of 2021 will very often be booked by or finished by September 2020 even. Well, I mean, it won't now, but if this was a normal year, it would be like this. So it's getting the lead in time gets longer and longer and longer every time. So let's say X-Band negotiates a fee of 5,000 euro. They are flying into that city. So I can tell you without a shadow of a doubt, if you want to fly in on a Friday and leave on a Saturday or fly in a Saturday, leave on a Sunday from one big European city to another during the summer, you will be paying 250 to 350 euros each member. There is no doubt about that. You may have found the one place Cluj in rural Romania or something whereby you can go on a Thursday and come back on a Sunday. But bands who have to get in and get out because they only have X amount of holidays from work. As I said, Primordial is not a professional band, so we only have X amount of holidays from work. So you can't waste an extra day. You can't fly on a Friday and play on a Saturday because Friday is a day where everyone has to take off work, etc. Unless it financially makes sense. So let's say X-Band negotiates a 5,000 euro fee. There are five members have to fly in at 250, let's say 300 euros per flight. Okay, that is 1,500 euro gone from the fee, right? The booking agency takes 15, 20% off the top of the fee. So that is also, that's taken from the fee to begin with. So then you take the flights from the fee. Now, every guitar is usually 50 euro each way luggage. Think about that. Maybe the band has one, two crew. They bring one or two extra people, which is an extra flight. Then you have a 19 or 20, 21 percent artist withholding tax. Don't crucify me on those numbers. I'm, this is vaguely off the top of my head. And so very soon, not only your, that, but your own tax issues within your own country as well uh, of residence. So very quickly, you could be looking at 1500 euros of flights, um, another 200 euro, 250 euro for a crew. Don't forget, crew members have to be paid 150 up to 300 euros a day. So that could be an extra four or 500 euro costs. Have two crew, that could be 800 to 1,000 euro costs. Then you have your artist withholding tax at 20% and your booking agency fee at 15%. Very, very soon, a 5,000 euro fee can literally leave you with um, less, could leave you with 800 euro, 900 euro, 1,100 euro, divided by five, and then take in sundries, um, car parking costs, um, other internal costs on your way to the airport. And yeah, you can see how you might come back from playing one festival on a Saturday in if your fee is 5,000 euro, where you could come back having only made two or 300 euro. Now, the truth is most bands are not on 5,000 euro fee. Most bands are on very little, if anything at all. And especially bands who have no fee and but have to fly in, you can forget it. If you're from Ireland and you have no fee and you want to fly into Germany and the most they offer you is 500 euro or 700 euro, this isn't going to cover your flight. So this is, uh, I mean, a practical example of this is Dread Sovereign. Um, very hard to book because you're in that opening phase where you can, might get a four or 500 euro fee, but your flights aren't going to cover that. Anyway, you can also take into account that most festivals take 20, 30% of your merchandise charge they charge that fee so then you've got you will have to pay baggage luggage fees on the merchandise as you either bring it with you or shipping fees to to take it to where it is add into that the fact that most a lot of young people now buy 
the merch of the festival. They don't buy the band's merch so much anymore. Tom Hunting from Exodus said, we are nothing but traveling T-shirt salesmen. And he had a very good point. We kind of are, right? And I will say, most people are surprised at this, but let's take X Festival that you can imagine, X Big, Big Festival, and consider the bands at the end of that festival. And they will often be looking at, you will often be looking at fees in six figures and multiples of six figures. Yeah, this is true. So what you have is the old legacy bands uh, making hay while the sun shines. I mean, realistically, this touring circuit, festival touring circuit didn't exist 20 years ago. So now you can play festivals every weekend of all summer and into the winter. Well, you could in the winter. So these old legacy vintage bands, headliners, um, are, of course, taking advantage of um, the opportunities that are presented to them. But while they charge more and more for their um, shows, the bands at the beginning and the middle are the ones who get squeezed, you know. Also, you've probably seen a band saying who are playing X album from 1994 and you go and watch them and you go, oh, OK. But X band who have album from 94 can say we sold 80,000 copies of said record. It's a very good point because no one sells any records anymore. So it's a very good bargaining tool. And right now you kind of got to use everything you got, right? Personally, I have no problem with bands touring old albums. I mean, I saw Deicide play in 1990, their first album. If You know, most people, a lot of people who would love that album weren't born then. So if Deicide want to tour the album Deicide, why not? It's up to them. They wrote it. Doesn't change anything like that. It's up to you whether you decide you want to go or not, you know? I don't begrudge bands playing those old albums because, you know, there ain't no pension plan generally playing music. There ain't no pension plan playing heavy metal. And if you've made an album in 1987 or 88 that was huge and you want to go out and you can do it justice. I mean, uh, there's nothing sadder than watching a really pathetic attempt at trying to play your old album. But if you're going to go and see an old band who could really have their shit together, why not? Whatever. It doesn't bother me. You make your choice with your own cynicism by virtue of going or not going. Anyway, so to make things worthwhile, very often financially you have, you really need to do two or three, like Thursday, Friday, Saturday, three festivals in a row and line them up. But I will say, for example, Primordial had to get from Prague to Northern Finland one time. And that's that was three flights, three sets of luggage, uh, and then back to Dublin. and out of a fee that was very close to five figures, we would have been left with almost nothing once you took into account all of those flights, all of those taxes, artists withholding taxes, two crew members, et cetera, et cetera. So when someone says to you, oh, we're, this is how bands make money, i.e. playing live, you do have to take into account lots of rather boring banalities and statistical imperatives, such as artist withholding tax oh okay etc etc so plenty of people have asked me about that plenty of people also asked me about the economics of touring first thing first I have to say that um, when a European band declares themselves as working and tours the United States they have to have a working visa and that costs generally between three and four thousand euro so and most European bands have to pay their own flights to the USA the days of tour support when labels would pay for those things are more or less gone because they just don't financially make any sense anymore. So 
ex-European band is touring uh, Europe, um, they will generally pay their own flights, their own working visas, and print their merch up front, of course. So probably before you've seen them play the first day, day they are €10,000 in the hole. So if you've seen them play to 80 people or 110 people, they're losing money. In fact, realistically, playing to any less than 150 people anywhere, realistically, is not making any money. But if you've seen, I don't know, Rod in Christ playing in Des Moines to 42 people, you've got to know that they're on a loser, all things considered. Anyway, that's that out of the way. Touring in the USA and Europe are two very different things. Um, I've only done a couple of tours in the USA. I love it, no doubt, but it's a very different economics. So, but I'll concentrate on Europe for the moment. So, again, what happens is booking agency puts together a lineup, two, three bands, offers them to the local booking agents in your city or your town. And they sometimes those agents can be connected to a venue, sometimes not. So if not, then they have venue costs, venue hire. So let's say three bands in a van. 1,500 euro is their selling price to a local agency. That means they're calculating probably a break-even of about 100 to 120 people at an 18 euro ticket. So in that 1,500 euro, you have to get, you have to pay for gas, van hire, driver, crew per day. You also have to find a place to sleep for all of those people, which is usually a hostel or a floor. Um, very often you'll have the back line in the van. Um, and it's very difficult to run a van tour for a couple of bands. And you need to have a couple of bands usually to get more people in. As we know, this is the law of diminishing returns um, touring at the moment because, as I said, everyone is, is out there trying to sell T-shirts, i.e. the only thing you can't download or stream. So, therefore, um, everyone has to tour. And you saw how the music industry started to collapse when this pandemic started because that old-school artery, that lifeblood of analog music, of live music, of rock music, of metal music, was just taken away and all of a sudden like a deck of, you know, house of cards, it all collapsed, you know. So once that, so you have your 1,500 euro fee. And now imagine that, like I said, you've got to pay probably two crew, a driver, a front of house, maybe a merch person. Usually bands sell their own merch. Um, two, three bands together, all with a bed to sleep in at night. Um, is, you, is there going to be anything really left of a, of even a, and there's a lot of tours that go around, there's being sold for 500 euro, 600, 7, 800 euro. Some bands have vans, etc. But even a 1200 euro or 1500 euro fee is not going to leave any particular band member with more than 50 euro a day. It won't. In fact, it probably won't even leave that. You're, you're playing for your merch, you know. So on those terms, of course, bands are not professional like they used to be. Maybe they're from a country that doesn't have a welfare state. And also welfare states are far more integrated into your social media now so if you're announced a 40-day tour and your local welfare state goes hey are you making any money on that you might lose your welfare status it's not 1987 anymore you know it's not 1997 things are much more difficult with social media to be able to be a musician and take a little bit from column a and column b and column c it just doesn't really exist anymore you know um, so on those terms you have to take all of those things out of that 1,000 to 1,500 euro. 
the reality is that anytime you've seen a band play to less than probably 120, 150 people, nobody is really making anything except the crew who will have to be paid day to day, you know, which is why often you see most booking agents will install themselves as the front of house or as the as a crew person, because that's the only way you can have. That's the only way that you can actually have an income um, day to day. So where does that leave us? I mean, I did what I neglected to mention is that, of course, if the tour is being booked by a booking agent, that the booking agent's fee comes off the front of that offer. So a 15 or 20 percent will come off that 600 euro, 800 euro, 12, 1500 euro fee, you know. Um, and of course, whatever the band's flights may be into that first date will come from uh, the band's potential earnings, you know. Like I, I did state before that the concept of tour support isn't something that really exists anymore. Um, so where does that leave us? I mean, I've heard rumours one way and rumours the other way uh, saying that there won't be any shows before the end of the year. And some people have optimistically placed bookings uh, after August the 30th or after August the 31st. I don't know. My internal pessimism seems to think that this year might be done. I mean, goddamn, I hope not. But it's possible. It's possible. I mean, maybe you might see a Bavarian band playing in a small Bavarian pub to Bavarians. But um, that's a place in Germany for anyone outside who doesn't know and thinks I'm just saying Bavarian wrong. But no, it's Bavaria. Um, but then how do you negotiate things like going to the bar you could social distance in the crowd uh, or going to the toilet or whatever you know I think that comedy might be able to come back seated comedy maybe but again how do you negotiate those moments where people have to be close together it's it's a headache it's a complete headache you know you can see what's happening with sports at the moment at the uh, they're trying to resurrect football seasons all across the world and it's just not happening for them you know I mean I will say that w the lobby of musicians is so poor that the mainstream media seems to be writing very very I've read very few stories in the mainstream media about what this all means for musicians because if you're if your living is being made of playing live music then really you could you're in trouble for the next two years you could be very very easily and also as I said I mean are we going to be allowed to travel into other cities without this passport of immunity um, I mean we're also talking about stage crew lighting crew I mean bars are going to go bust venues are going to go bust booking agents are going to lose their job um, not before we even get to theatre comedy venues etc and I don't see many articles being written about it in fact the BBC today online had an article about how clowns in India can't get to the circus I mean maybe they just wrote that purely to uh, poke fun at me maybe no one else read it or saw it and only I saw it either way it was a story about clowns not being able to get to the circus now will we be able to return I don't know but there's no doubt that the lobby group of musicians is very low on the pecking order, on the pecking order of power when it comes to economic leverage, you know. Um, 
I said it in the last, well, actually, I think I said it in the deleted podcast, but that you may have visited your last festival with the freedom that you had at the time for the last time. I really hope not. Um, like I said, this could be, this is a life without adventure, and that part of um, adventure is what gives the lifeblood to rock and to rock and metal. To it's like I said, uh, an analog process. Um, and if the future is gonna have to be my own cooking show or a acoustic gig in my front room, then I don't really want any part of it. I'm not going to be on Twitch playing games, asking to be paid, so to speak. You know, nothing against anybody who has already built that platform for themselves, but to see many musicians reduced to playing uh, instrumental covers of 80s TV show theme tunes is pretty demeaning on some level. Anyway, all we can do is hope that, well, oh, that's all we can really do. Anyway, I'm, I'm aware of the fact that um, no doubt people will come at me with, oh, you got this fact and figure wrong, and that's no problem. I mean, these are meandering, rambling chats where I'm speaking off the top of my head, so invariably they're going to go a bit all over the place. But with that in mind, let's close out this episode. Um, I should do another Instagram live chat soon. If you want me to talk about something in particular on this, hit me up with a DM and let me know. Right, Instagram is primordial underscore nimtianga. We also have a YouTube channel. Um, which is just my name again, Al Naver, which is I'm uploading some old primordial shows recently and getting some good reaction to that. So go and have a look, have a route around for that on YouTube. And we shall see you next time. Remember, metal never bends. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most. But if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.